Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from the Canary Islands. By the way, there are eight Canary Islands, and none of them is named after a yellow bird. Instead, they're named after a dog. They're rugged, beautiful volcanic islands with strong history and culture. And if you've been watching the news lately, a volcanic eruption on the island of La Palma. We have a wide range of discussions this week, starting with Peter Robeson from Bloomberg, who is also the author of a fascinating and disturbing new book, Flying Blind, The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. It's required reading, and you'll soon learn why. Then I move over to the technical side. If you can't live without Wi-Fi when you travel, and that certainly describes me, then listen up. Thomas Germain from Consumer Reports with some warnings about using public Wi-Fi. Then we'll head to the volcano on La Palma and spend some time with volcanologist Neva Sanchez on what the scientists say is happening now and what might soon be happening. And finally, have you ever heard of the Timpla? Some say it looks and sounds a little like a ukulele, but it's a musical instrument from the Canaries. An award-winning musician, Herman Lopez, stops by to explain this music and also to play for us. But first up, a sobering report on the Boeing 737 MAX with author Peter Robison. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
For those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you know that uh, aviation safety is uh, one of my areas of interest. I've been covering it for more than 40 years, starting when I was a correspondent for Newsweek. And uh, what's amazing, uh, uh, you know, about this particular story that I'm about to share with you, and the irony about it is, this is a show that we're doing this week from the Canary Islands. And uh, that's a story that I covered as well, the worst aviation disaster in modern aviation history, where the KLM 747 smashed into the Pan Am 747 in Tenerife uh, 40 years ago, resulting in the largest uh, loss of life in the history of commercial aviation. And investigating that crash of, uh, ironically, two Boeing 747 planes. Now we're shifting gears. We're talking about another tragedy, uh, also involving Boeing a company that's 100 years old, a titan in the aviation industry, virtually untouchable in terms of its reputation. And yet in 2018 and 2019, as many of you remember all too well, there were two almost back-to-back crashes in terms of the, fre- the, the amount of frequency we're talking about. Two 737 MAX planes uh, crashed, killing 346 people. And what developed in the investigation was the exposure, really, of a pattern of indifference, of arrogance, of deception. I can go on, but I won't because my next guest did go on. He's written an amazing book. It's a staggering read, and it's appropriately titled Flying Blind, The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. He, you, you may read, read him all the time in Bloomberg. His name, Peter Robinson. Peter, thank you for joining us. Th- thanks so much for having me. I mean, you know, when you investigated this story, I remember... You know, if you look at a culture of safety, the good news is, and I'm sure, you know, you know this, we've had the best 20 years of aviation safety in the history of commercial aviation with a couple of asterisks. And these are the two asterisks caused by basically the same reason. You know, you had an unsafe plane that was improperly certified under false circumstances. The pilots got blamed. They had nothing to do with it. It had to do with what did Boeing know? When did it know it? And how did it try to cover it up? And that's really the story you did. That's, that's really a great way of, um, of, of putting it. And it, it occurred to me as you were uh, talking that you've, you've covered aviation disasters for your career. And what I have covered at Boeing is, is re- really a financial disaster. I, I started covering Boeing as a beat reporter for Bloomberg in the late 90s, and it, it was unstoppable, it, it seemed. It was on top of the world. It had two thirds of the commercial aircraft market, and it, it had this hard won reputation for, for peerless engineering and integrity. In fact, in fact, Peter, there, there's a saying that pilots used to say if it's not Boeing, I'm not going. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and, that, and that was testament to its reputation. Uh, but, but, what happened over time was, it's a cliche, but you know, the, the bean counters won. The, the, the company became one that was ruled by uh, its, its financial side, ruled by the CFO's office. Increasingly, uh, the bottom line priorities won out. And as was demonstrated ably by the many reporters who dug in on the Max story, uh, there, there were many opportunities that Boeing had to develop a plane that would have had more safety features, would have alerted the pilots about the software that was being put on the plane, and, and Boeing disregarded those warnings and, and went ahead and, and did uh, what it wanted to do for, for expedience and for the bottom line. 
And let's go back and talk just about the 737 itself, which is an iconic aircraft. It's been flying for over 50 years. There was the, you know, the Model 100, 200, 300, 400. We're now at the Model 900, and of course the Max itself. So it's, it was a, it, it's sort of like the original DC-3. I mean, it was the workhorse. Uh, there are still more 737s in the sky now than I think any other aircraft type. So it did prove itself over, over decades, and yet there was the max. You know, the question became, how much could you extend an airframe? How much could you widen an airframe? Not much. How much more power could you put on an airframe uh, without the engines literally dragging on the ground? Um, where, what about the center of gravity? And then something that I know that you addressed is not just particular to Boeing, but particular to every airplane manufacturer, the certification process. How does a plane get certified as airworthy? And uh, it's interesting, I, I refer everybody to an old Jimmy Stewart movie, I hope you got a chance to see it, Peter, it goes back many years, called No Highway. Uh, I, I love Jimmy Stewart, but I've not seen that one. Oh, you gotta see I'll it. look it up. You gotta see it. It's, uh, I, won't, I won't ruin it, but you gotta see it. Uh, but what you'll see in that movie is the way planes used to get certified. You take a basic prototype airframe, you put it on a test bed, and you take every single component part to failure. That's how you write the manuals. Don't fly it faster than this, higher than this, colder than this, warmer than this. Watch your angle of attack. All the things that go into making a plane aerodynamically stable and certified as airworthy. Um, so the certification process of this plane became somewhat suspect because Boeing, uh, and you talk about this in the book, was making the claim that, oh, there's nothing to see here. It's just another 737. There's nothing for you to certify other than saying it's the same plane, more or less. Exactly. And that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you were um, talking about the many versions. This, this is the the fourth uh, com complete model of the 737, but counting all the, the various derivatives, it's it's actually the, the Max 8 was actually the 13th version of the 737. And originally, I was I was fascinated to learn in writing the book that uh, originally it it really was an afterthought. This was a plane that uh, Boeing CEO Bill Allen did not want to do. He he was happy to leave the market to the to to Douglas and the DC nine, but uh, eventually he was convinced that you know no this would be a good starter airplane for its customers. It would be a basic airplane that you know some of the the smaller customers would purchase, and then eventually they'd move up to the to the Cadillac. Uh, as, as the market developed, uh, as deregulation took hold, it was really the the small planes that airlines demanded, and they and they didn't want a lot of change in those airplanes either. And and customers like Southwest were demanding that the planes fly exactly the same. And and it was in that process that Boeing ran into trouble in, in making that decision between when do we when do we introduce a new model and 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 what features do we extend from the previous model and of course peter what constitutes what constitutes a new airplane which would require a whole complete different certification process exactly and and there really there's a rule that the fa has the changed product rule and and this was uh, introduced in the 60s at a time when uh, manufacturers were introducing new models frequently. There were many more airplane manufacturers. Uh, and over time, that change product rule um, really began to be abused. And uh, as a result of that rule, 
Boeing was able to claim exceptions uh, on the on the Max and and did not have to put in things like an ICAST system, which, which would have provided some electronic crew alerting that that might have you know helped the crew and improved safety. Uh, so 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 really, it's a story of uh, of of complacency and of of not. Uh, not listening to customers, I'd, I'd say, and and you know, I was surprised that even at the time, um, analysts, um, Boeing in 2011 had a choice uh, between doing a derivative of the 737 or an all new plane, and the the safe bet uh, it thought was to do the derivative. Uh, even analysts at the time said it it could have been a strategic masterstroke if Boeing had had just bitten the bullet and, and invested and created an all new plane. Exactly. And then, of course, the big the big elephant in the room is the certification process itself with what they call FAA designated inspectors on the assembly line. And who do they work for? They work for the manufacturer. If that doesn't scream conflict of interest, nothing does. And this is not just Boeing. This happened at Douglas. It happened at Lockheed. All the manufacturers, if you're a designated inspector hired by the manufacturer and it's your job to see if something's safe or not, what's your incentive to stop the production line if your paycheck comes from the manufacturer? I've never understood this. Exactly. And there, and there used to be checks and balances in this process. There was, there was an understanding that, that these designated engineering reps had an understanding that they had a dotted line reporting relationship to manage at the, manage at the FAA. They, they were empowered to raise concerns. Uh, exactly. And, and that shifted. There was one Boeing test pilot who's now been indicted, I believe. Uh, he's facing criminal charges. Uh, they subpoenaed all of his emails and his memos which are, on the face of it, pretty damning. He At one point, he was actually boasting about uh, playing mind games with FAA inspectors, wasn't he? Yeah, he, his, his favorite line was, uh, was Jedi mind tricks, that he was, he was using Jedi mind tricks to get the FAA to approve Bo- Boeing's preferred training, which was less training and, and less expensive training for the airlines. And, and really, you know, as, as you say, the, the, the stuff he's quoted as saying is, is, is damning and, and despicable and, and cynical. And, and he calls Lion Air idiots for wanting simulator training on the, on the max. Uh, but I, you know, I dug deeper into that in the, in the book. And uh, there is another way of looking at it. And it's that he is really carrying out the directives of his, his management. And in, in a way, he's, he's being a loyal foot soldier to this whole process. And as, as he said in one of these uh, emails, he, he was left out of the loop himself. He wasn't aware of, of the potential issues with, with MCAS when its authority was increased. That's the, the, the software that took over the planes in the, in the two crashes. And in those two crashes, the pilots didn't have a chance because they could not literally control the plane. The flight management system overrode them every chance, every, every chance it had. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable that a, that a problem like that would have gotten through the the system. That that was one, one of the the mother of uh, one of the victims, Samia Stumo. Uh, in her, I mean, it's it's tragic uh, that that this happened. And and in one of the events she held after uh, the the crash was 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 remarking that it, like that that got through the FAA that that two adult pilots could not override the software. It it means that the the systems are not in place to protect the public. And and that's been there focus ever since the crashes is is trying to find a way to, to make sure that these systems don't prevent another tragedy like this from happening. 
And that brings up the point of criminal liability. Are you telling me that in all of this, only one test pilot's been indicted? That's right. After, after all of this, uh, after the congressional hearings, after multiple civil lawsuits, after investigations, uh, all, all the news articles, uh, that this one single test pilot uh, is facing criminal charges. And uh, he he's also represented by a, a lawyer paid by Boeing. And it, as I describe in the book, it's 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 really part of a strategy to to contain the the potential liability for Boeing. And it's very unlikely that this case is going to result in further evidence emerging following the chain up up the chain, following the line up the chain of command. It's 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 unlikely to come out of this. Most people I've talked to are expecting a plea deal to come out of this trial. Wow. And of course, one of the memos that I read probably was not done by the by the test pilot. And I'm paraphrasing. It said that the plane was designed by clowns and supervised by monkeys. That that is there was a there were a number of people who were raising concerns uh, in every stage of the max, and I've I've since heard from more people since since writing the book uh, who who felt that uh, there were m- multiple opportunities management had to change the course of events and and the opportunities just weren't taken. So where do we go from here? Because you have criminal cases, you have civil cases, of course, wrongful death cases where there could be something called you know criminal liability for negligence for which there are no, you know, the punitive damages can be exponential. Where do you see this shaking out finally, Peter? Well, I, th- I think, um, I don't I don't mean to be cynical, but the main consolidated case in the Ethiopian crash is likely to be resolved uh, with a gag order imposed on the uh, victims' families. Uh, and Boeing uh, has agreed to admit liability in that case, but it would pay compensatory damages, not punitive damages. The CEO and other executives would not be deposed. Uh, I, I ended the book on on a note of really frustration and and um, and and just a, a, just the fact that that after all this uh, that Boeing got got away with it. That that the I talked to multiple people who who said that they wanted to the CEO to to resign. You know to resign that that they. It's it's just a, a frustration that after after all of this, there's there's still this feeling of impunity at Boeing and and the criminal penalty that it's paid the the, the two and a half billion dollars which the Department of Justice has trumpeted is includes compensation that Boeing is paying to customers and includes a one point four million dollar per family settlement. The, the amount of the criminal penalty is actually less than the two hundred forty million is the amount of criminal penalty. That's actually less than what Boeing paid in a defense scandal in the in, in the early two thousands. Wow! So it, it's a it's a sign of where we are as a country when you have these large entities that have been able to game the system to to find a way to for its top executives to not face true liability. Well, I've got to ask one last question, Peter. Would you fly the plane today? It's a great question. I've looked at the statistics, and so far the MAX has flown 200,000 times since it returned to service. There's a fatal crash every, last year it was one for every 3.7 million flights. So so for me, having looked at it as closely as I have, I, I'm, I'm gonna wait. My thanks to Peter. 
Indeed, it's a story far from over. The next time you fly, take a train, or hang out at an airport or hotel, do you use public Wi-Fi? Thomas Germain from Consumer Reports has a warning for you. The next subject I want to talk about raises its ugly head every time we travel, or in the case of the pandemic, every time we return to travel. We're all addicted to the internet. We all want Wi-Fi wherever we go. We, we, we complain whenever we don't get it. But the real question is, what are we getting? And, uh, and where are we getting it? And uh, my next guest knows a little bit about that. He's technology editor at Consumer Reports. Thomas Germain, walk me through the perils of public Wi-Fi. So uh, this is a problem that fortunately has gotten a lot better over the years. It used to be that the general advice was it wasn't safe to use public Wi-Fi. You really wanted to avoid it whenever you could. That's changed because uh, now most websites and a lot of apps are encrypting the web traffic, which means it's obscured so anyone who's trying to get at your personal information isn't going to be able to see it. And you actually can see this yourself. You know, when you go to a website and you notice there's a little lock icon in the top left of the URL there, that's letting you know that the website is communicating over an encrypted connection. Uh, so it's a lot safer than it used to be, but there are a couple situations where you want to be careful. Uh, and specifically, that's when you're accessing anything that's particularly sensitive, right? If you're typing any very sensitive password for something for work or going to your bank account and making a purchase. Those are situations where you sometimes want to be careful. And my general advice to people is if you're trying to get on the internet uh, somewhere other than a network that you're very comfortable and familiar with, like the Wi-Fi at your house, you want to make sure that you're on the right network because sometimes people will set up a fake Wi-Fi network that has a similar name to the one belonging to your coffee shop and they can get in and get at your personal information. So just double check the name of the network when you're trying to log in. Talk to someone who works at the place where you're trying to get on the Wi-Fi. So what you're basically so what you're basically telling me is what I've been doing is all wrong because I'll I'll take you know some downtime at the airport to go online and order something on Amazon. Yeah, well it, it depends what we're talking about here. If you're going on Amazon and you're just clicking buy, right? You've already put in your credit card information you're actually not typing in anything sensitive, right? You're just making a purchase over Amazon, hitting that button. But if you're typing in your credit card information, right, or you're putting your password into your bank account, that's a situation where the actual information that you're typing in is sensitive. But if you're just using a service that you're already logged into, or you're not putting any sensitive information into your computer and sending that over the internet, that's a situation where you generally say. And then here's my other question for you. And somebody marketed this to me a couple of years ago, and I was actually stupid enough to, to, to buy it. Um, and I didn't find it very useful at all, but they're still marketing it. It's sort of a plastic uh, see-through cover for your screen that you put on top of your screen so that somebody sitting next to you, it's impossible for them to see what you're looking at unless they're sitting literally behind you. Right. This is something that uh, was getting a lot of attention a couple of years ago. You don't hear about it quite as often these days, but these are actually pretty cool, right? If you're in it, like, let's say you're working on something really sensitive for work or, you know, something along those those lines where it's not just the connection that you're worried about, it's the people around you. You can get these simple screens that just sit on top of your computer screen for a couple of dollars. They're usually pretty cheap. 
And the, the way it works is you can only see what's on your screen if you're looking directly at it right in front of it. So someone sitting to the side of you can't right, see what's right. on and, and the reason why I bought it was because not that I had you know sensitive financial information on my screen, but I was sitting on so many airline flights where the guy sitting next to me just was, he couldn't help himself. He wanted to see what I was writing, you know, and I just, it just really got me angry. Yeah, I, I have the same experience. You know, I just can't handle people looking over my shoulder and it's human nature, right? Even if they're not doing anything sneaky. So this is an easy way that you can solve that problem. And of course, if you're going to public Wi-Fi, and I remember, you know, the days at the airports where they had Boingo, they still do at some airports, they still have those contracts. And you have to wade through like 16 hours of ads to get anything that's free, uh, meaning Wi-Fi service. Uh, but what you're saying is, if I'm going online and it says Gmail with two Gs or AOL with three Ls, probably suspicious. That's something to be really careful about, too. And also, it like the name of that Wi-Fi network, right? If it's Starbucks, but it's spelled weird, right? It could be that someone set up a fake network that you can get on. And one thing you can do to avoid that problem is if you have cell service, you can use your phone as a hotspot, right? Instead of connecting to the Wi-Fi. Sometimes you got to pay more for that. But if you're worried about your security, that's an easy solution. I got gotcha. you. So three cheers to uh, Consumer Reports for giving us that information again, because as more and more people are traveling, they're taking their Wi-Fi on the road. But what about hotel lobbies? Same principle applies? Yeah, the same principle applies. You can, you can take this advice and pretty much uh, use it anywhere you go, right? Whether you're at the coffee shop, you're at the airport, you're in the hotel lobby, right? These are all situations where someone can sit there and they can they can bring this equipment and sit and sit in their cars or even sometimes have it in a backpack right where they create a wi-fi network that's blasting into the same area and they know the name of the actual network and then they can intercept the traffic uh they call this a man in the middle attack they're sitting in between you and the internet and they can sometimes read what you're seeing that's something that you can generally avoid if you just put in a little extra due diligence if you're ever in a situation when you're getting on a wi-fi network that you're not intimately familiar with. This is just a, one of these places where you want to be careful. I gotcha. Now, let's shift gears. Uh, the holidays are upon us. And if you're like me, you're, an, you're, a, you're a music nut. You want the best quality, especially on the road. Uh, you don't just want headphones that have great speakers. You want headphones that have great noise cancellation opportunities as well because there's so much ambient noise in the plane. You did the research on this. So let's talk about the best headphones of 2021 as done by Consumer Reports. So this is something I love talking about. I'm a big audio nerd. I'm one of these people that's really obsessed with getting the best sound quality. But I'm also really concerned with people, you know, getting the best value for their money, right? Because there's a lot of brands out there with big names like Bose and Apple, and they make great products, but often you're getting charged a premium just for that brand name. And you can get something that performs just as well for a lot less. You know, one of my favorite examples, right? Everybody knows Bose headphones, right? They're very popular. The latest model of Bose noise canceling 700 headphones cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. They could be, depending on where you buy them, they could be up to $400. But we've seen a model from a brand called Sennheiser, which is also pretty well known. It's called, you probably just Google it yourself. You can go to Consumer Reports, just search for best headphones. You'll bring up our article here. But the Sennheiser PXC 552s, right? These are really outstanding headphones and they sell for as much as two or $300 less than what you'll pay for the latest from Bose. And they uh, perform almost exactly as well in our test. Outstanding noise cancellation, really great sound quality. 
Or there's also a brand called Monoprice, which we really like that makes bargain price products. We've seen a pair of headphones from them, which cost just $40. They're not quite as good as the Bose or those Sennheisers, but they're really outstanding. And the sound quality is going to be more than enough for most people. And you can pick those up for what you'd pay for a nice dinner. That's that's a, a brand of products that we really love. All right. What about Beats? Yeah, Beats is another one where, you know, they've made some great headphones, but we've also seen over the years a lot of duds from them. They're kind of hit and miss. And that's one brand where the name itself, I would say, isn't a mark of quality. But what it does usually represent is a product that's going to cost a lot of money. People love Beats headphones. They look really cool, right? And if that's what you want, you know, there's no shame there. But you can get headphones that are a lot cheaper. Those two that I mentioned are good examples. If you want in-ear headphones, uh, we really like a pair from Samsung. They're called the Galaxy Buds. Those have just exceptional audio quality, and you can pick those for just pick those up for just over a hundred dollars. A lot less than what you'll pay for those, you know, flashier names like Beats. Well, you know, you said there's no shame with with with, uh, with style over substance. I disagree. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to just look. I don't care how ugly they look. I just want them to sound good. I mean, I don't mind getting on the plane looking like Rick Moranis in, in uh, Spaceballs, you know, if if I can actually get great sound. Yeah, and that's what I'm into, right? Like, I really want to hear the music the way that the artist intended. I want to just get that pristine audio quality. But, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, you're wearing these on your face. And for a lot of people you know, your headphones are a fashion statement. You want to look cool. And, you know, you could say that that's silly, but I think it's worth keeping in mind. You know, All right. That- so let me take it. Let me take it one step further. I, when I get on an airplane, I do want to make a statement, but not a fashion statement, an isolation statement. I want everyone right. looking at me with those humongous pair of headphones on my head to know I'm not interested in talking to you. Yeah, this guy, uh, he's hes making a statement. I'm blocking myself out from the world. That That is really nice. And that's why, you know, I like to wear those over-ear headphones on the plane instead of the little earbuds to just let everybody know, not only am I personally cut off, but I want to be cut off. I don't want people to bother me. <laughs> My thanks to Thomas. Back in mid-September, the volcano on the island of La Palma erupted, spewing acid and ash all over the island, destroying more than 1,400 homes displacing more than 8,000 people. And it's still erupting. Volcanologist Neva Sanchez has gotten closer than anyone to nature's wrath, and she talks to me about what the scientists are thinking about and what they're worried about. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. If you do any research at all on the Canary Islands, you'll realize that they're all volcanic islands, some of them younger than others, some of them more susceptible to eruptions. And joining me now, Nieves Jimenez, who's a researcher and a geologist here, who's been in place here on La Palma since even before the eruption. This was like a not big a surprise to you. Well, it is not really a, a big surprise because uh, as we know that the, the Canary Islands are really a volcanic island, we were, uh, we did 
we know we knew before that uh, uh, it was volcanic eruption coming in the next year so it is not really a surprise and the one that was before this the, the most recent eruption was when the most recent it was in El Hierro in 2011 the island of Hierro yeah it was a submarine submarine eruption 10 years ago but in the in the earth on the earth the last one it was in 1971 in the lava flowing yeah in in uh, the south of the of La Palma but it was with lava flows uh, over the over the earth yes and geologically speaking this is a young island yes this uh, la palma and el hierro are the youngest island of the canary islands uh, it just uh, two million years ago the the, the 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 age of the island is just two million years and yet this is an island that's very green you go to some of the other islands they're not so green this one's green you don't expect a volcano to erupt here Yes, because uh, uh, the, uh, La Palma it has uh, the, the the wind uh, and the climate are different because uh, um, and also the the orography, the topography of the island are different. Every volcanic island are diff- every Canary Islands are different, and La Palma, La Gomera, and El Hierro are the most green of of all islands. Yes. You know, I went through a couple of earthquakes in California. One in 1971, then the big one in, in 89, and the biggest one in 94. Uh, and when you talk to the geological researchers, especially the guys at Stanford, they were doing primate research that said that a day or two before the earthquake, the animals changed their behaviors. They sort of knew it was coming. Did that happen here? Well, in, in some places of the island, in just in one place, uh, one or two days before the eruption, a colleague of mine went uh, to that place and she uh, talk me, uh, t- told me that there was uh, n- any kind of uh, noise or sound of animals. There were no animals at all at the Totally at that quiet. Place. Totally, totally quiet. quiet, yeah. And it was really, mm, well, mm, astonishing. I, I don't know exactly the word, but it was... Uh, it's kind of <laughs> a little scary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really, you, because because you knew it was coming. It, being on the field and without uh, having any kind of uh, sound is really terrible. I I I, should, I I say the sound of silence. Yes, yes, it's uh, I, yes, the sound of silence. Yes, it's the perfect play, the perfect word. Yes, you know, before the eruption here, it was a small island, not the most populated island in the Canaries. Um, and wasn't necessarily a big tourist destination. Now I came over on the ferry uh, yeah. from Tenerife, and you couldn't find a seat on the ferry. Hundreds of people coming over, just because it's now turned into an attraction. Yes, before the eruption, the the this uh, island it was the destiny of uh, people uh, doing hiking, hiking. The great outdoors. Yes, yeah. but it was just um, very few uh, tourist people. It just only uh, for hiking. But after the eruption, there are a lot of uh, a lot of people coming just to see the volcano. And as you as you have said, there is no tickets for plane or for the ferry. It's really difficult to to go into the island or to go out. Yes. Or even in the, mostly in, on the weekends. The weekends are really terrible. Yeah, it's weekend volcano tourism. Yes, because many people from coming from other islands uh, want to see the volcano. It's a, an attraction, and people want to see that. Yes, but you can't get that close. Well, uh, I, I think that the um, people. Uh, can't see the volcano on the distance, but uh, they should then they go really close to the volcano. And of course, where we're sitting right now, about maybe a half to three quarters of a mile away, mm-hmm. we can see all that orange, that bright orange lava flowing right down the hill. Yes. Uh, all the way to the sea. 
yes, the, the lava flows are coming just from the volcano, from the bottom part of the volcano, and just go to the west part of the island as the, until reach the, the sea. There are two lava deltas uh, forming because of the lava flows, and the lava flows are just flowing yeah, to the sea. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you about two things. The speed of the lava, the depth of the lava, actually three things, and the sound of the volcano. That, to me, was so haunting today. <laughs> Let's talk about the flow of the lava. <laughs> now, I'm a volunteer fireman in New York, and the thing that we fear the most with a fire is when you have wind, how fast the fire actually moves. It can move as much as two miles an hour, which is extremely fast. How much? How fast is this lava flowing? Well, it depends on the lava flow. We have measured the velocity of the lava flow, the, move, the movement of the lava flow, and sometimes we have measured the um, 12 meters per Per hour? No, 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 no. Per minute. 12 meters per minute? Yeah. Now yeah. that's fast. Yeah, but this is just when the lava flow is First just coming out, out of, the, of the vent. Because that kind of bunches up as it gets deeper and deeper and deeper to go over other things. Yes, but uh, when, when the lava flow just is coming out, sometimes it's really fast, the movement. But when the lava flow reaches a plain place, it is a stop. The, the velocity is just much more slow because it needs to to grow in, in thickness just to be able to go on moving. So the velocity of the lava flow in that place is it can be just one meter per hour. Yeah, for, but it's also example. going deeper. Yeah. yeah. Mm. How deep is that lava? Because when you look at it during the daytime, it's just one sea of black before it lights up at night. And what you what you told me earlier is that it's actually could be covering 30 or 40 feet below it because it's covered all the houses that it's destroyed. Yes, we have measured some places with a thickness of lava flow of uh, between 20 and 30 meters. That's, that's, that's uh, wow, that's thickness. 90 feet. Yes, it's really, really huge, uh, a really, really big thickness, yes. In some places, there are other places maybe with two, or three meters in thickness. And then, of course, I wanted to talk to you about the sound of the volcano. Yeah. It's, I, having gone through three earthquakes, I sort of have come to recognize the terrifying sound of an earthquake. Then there was what I heard earlier today, the terrifying sound of an eruption. Yes, because uh, it is a very, very special sound. Sometimes it's like a thunder, a and other times it's like uh, the sound of uh, of gas blowing out of the volcano. It's like a a continuous sound, and the mixture of the, these two sounds sometimes is really terrifying. Yeah, and it definitely gets your attention. Yeah, you can't avoid it. No, 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 it is impossible because it is so loud that it is, uh, um, the, the, the atmosphere is full of this sound. It's absolutely um, astonishing, really. When people come to this island for the first time after the volcano, what's the thing that surprises them the most? Uh, the first thing is just uh, uh, to have a new mountain in a place where uh, two months ago there were nothing. And the second one is just exactly the sound. Many people uh, say that the most uh, surprising thing is the sound because in many images in the TV, people only see the images, but the sound is never Or they've seen too many there. movies. Or they've yeah, seen too many movies. Yeah, because people have seen the, 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 volca the volcanoes in the movies, but many times the sound is not there. So when people is here, the most surprising thing for many people is just the sound of the volcano. And as you wait till later in the afternoon, the early evening hours, when the sun goes down and the lava lights up the, the, the entire environment, what you hear is three things. You hear the sound of dogs barking, you hear the rumbling of the volcano, and then you hear yourself going, oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's uh, Many times you are saying, oh God, I 
cannot believe that. So it's really, oh God, oh God, yes. So you, you answered me when I said, what is it that surprises the visitors? What is it that surprises you? The sound. Really? The Still. sound. The first time it was the sound because uh, I don't, uh, uh, I didn't think that the sound w could be so loud. And for me, it was the most surprising thing, yeah. And as you begin to research or continue the research here, there are no real guarantees. You're writing the textbook as you're going along. You have no idea when this is going to end. You have no idea when the next one's going to happen. So what do you hope to learn from this? Uh, I would like uh, that people and researchers uh, learn that the 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 uh, a volcano can uh, in Canary Islands we can have a volcano in every place in every time so that we live in volcanic islands and we should uh, learn to to live with the volcano we cannot live without the volcano and Canary Islands are what uh, islands are because of the volcano so uh, we should uh, learn to convive. Uh, I don't know if it is said that in English. To live with right. uh, with the volcano. To coexist. To coexist with the volcano because the volcano give us many things, and also the volcano take out take out many other things. You have no choice. The only choice is just to to live in another place. But this is a really beautiful place to live. So I think that we have no choice. My thanks to Nevis. And now a visit with Herman Lopez, a native son of Gran Canaria and the maestro of the Templar, on the evolution of this Canary Island musical instrument and a sound unique to the islands. My next guest is someone that's uh, getting quite a reputation in the United States, but he is born and raised here. He learned his craft here, and he's going to explain what he does because it's an instrument that most Americans really don't know. You might think of it as a ukulele. It looks a little bit like a ukulele, but it's quite different. Herman Lopez, how are you, sir? How are you? I'm good. So, born and raised here? Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm a, a local musician. I, I was born here and I grew up here. And like, like it's usually here, I, I learned this small and beautiful instrument. It's called timple. The timple is like a small guitar and very close to ukulele yeah, and it other looks small like, guitars. Yes. Yeah, but uh, timple has four, uh, ukulele has four strings and timple has five strings. So you can do more. Yeah, <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> but how did you come to learn this instrument? Because here... And, and, and what does this instrument mean to the islands? And, and this is maybe the most representative instrument in the in the Canary Islands because it's the, the his sound is very particular. It's a, a high, but at the same time, it's very sweet sound. And it's our most representative instrument. And I, I learned it because I wanted to play guitar, but it was too small because I had <laughs> only five years old and the guitar was huge so for me. So they started you out with a small one which was called the template <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's how it started. And 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 the teacher said, yeah, you are very very small guy for the guitar, but you can learn the template first, and maybe in a few years you can continue with the guitar. And I w and I was in love with this instrument because I I'm a very lucky guy because my teacher was uh, one of the best template players in the world and in the history. And in that time, the Canary Islands, uh, 25 years ago, uh, the template was a um, a very traditional instrument only use it in the folk in the folk music and the traditional songs and in that time some musicians began to use the timple like a solace instrument and, and began to use the timple in our in their own compositions for recording CDs and all, all the kind of elements and so you learned the traditional yeah and then you broke away yeah 
yeah, th that's the point for me, and that's my inspiration, my inspiration. And what kind of songs were the original songs when you say folk music? Were yeah, they, was it like Portuguese fado where it was very sad? Canary Islands, uh, Canary Islands folk music is a very interesting situation because the Canary Islands is, are like like a bridge between Europe and, and America. And I of course, if you look at the map, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, because of the migrations, a lot of people who wanted to go to America, the last stop in, in Europe is the Canary hey, Islands. Christopher Columbus. Yeah, that that's the, the maybe the most famous guy who did that, and it's it's usual that that the music we have here came from Europe. So it's very common in our folk music to play polkas, to play mazurkas, like you're like playing Leo. polkas here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what happened is that maybe uh, people uh, uh, changed the letters, changed the, the dances we, the, they made with that kind of music, and now it's our music. We said our folk music because uh, we played here, but obviously from Portugal, the, our folias it came from the from the fados, and also with Latin America influences. We are very close, like like a culture with Cuba, with Venezuela. So the music is a mix of the, of the elements. And of course, if you're going to describe what is the music of the Canary Islands, you're playing it. Yeah, yeah. But you've also evolved. You play. You, you've developed more than just the traditional folk music. Yeah, of course, of course. And. I should tell everybody that you're about to go on a big tour of the United States. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing for me and, and amazing for a local musician like me. Not a local musician, a musician who plays a local instrument. And uh, to be on tour in, in the USA and next year in March, I, I'm going to be there for a month. How many cities? Yeah, maybe, I, I know for sure that are uh, 25 concerts. Whoa. Uh, and maybe everyone in, in a different places. So we are starting in, in California and the, the last concert is in New York. West to East. Hey, you also recorded a new album in a yeah. place I used to hang out, Capitol Records on Vine Street in Los Angeles. Yeah. A building, by the way, designed by Nat King Cole. Wow. Right? Wow. Still there. Uh, and the old studio, Sinatra recorded there, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, so many greats have, have done there. And yeah. you recorded there as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with, with musicians from LA, like a lot of them, and the, the producer is, uh, is Greg Field. Uh, he lives in, in LA, and also musician from Miami and from New York. And musician from from different parts, also in the. In the so they put all the session and, guys together with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, we recorded at the same time, playing together, and that was uh, maybe the, the most interesting experience I have ever been. Now you mentioned it has five strings, but yeah. but how is it made? It's it's with different kind of wood, and every if you want a particular sound, kind of sound, you can use different kind of kind of wood. This is a very very interesting one because it's with wood with. Two thousand years. Two thousand years. This this wood and it's a, it's a very yeah 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 and that has a very particular sound and and I love it and I notice a seahorse. Yeah 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 yeah. It's, it's a, a like like the the sign of the the luthier. In every temple he made has this this element. Does. Yeah. And it's a light instrument. It doesn't weigh very much. Yep. Right. But it has a great sound. I love it. When you <laughs> write your songs, what are you writing your songs about? 
I love instrumental music. I love to to work in three three big big um, aspects. One of them is my own compositions, a very uh, melodic and very sweet. And always work also with the traditional music, but open to different influences. In the Canary Islands, I, I love to to try to to play traditional music, but why not with flamenco or with African influences or with Latin instrument, Latin influence, and make a mix of of that elements. With with the you can find the melody, but the other elements are different, and I love that process. You know, when people first come to the Canary Islands, obviously they're surprised by the number of them, by the volcanic nature of them. Yeah. Also, of course, by the sound, and this is the first time they're going to hear this. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it is. Are you going to play for us today? Yeah, um, I think the, the best is to play a, a fall fall song. It's a polka. Uh, one a polka? From, yeah, one from I've come Grand all the way Canary. to the Canary Islands for a polka? Yeah, it's very common in our folk music, but you can find a, a, the same the same rhythm, the same air. Is that, is that part of like the German influence? From Poland. I know, from Poland, of yeah. course, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, but that's very common here it's a very a very funny very funny music to dance and to sing and we we changed in the canary Islands. we changed the letters the lyrics so and uh, now it's in, i am not going to sing because it's, it's better for your program but only to play the <laughs> only to play the instrument. i've been warned okay okay herman lopez and does the song have a name yeah which means sir can you come here with me okay I'll, I'm, I'm gonna come here with you right now sir or lady herman take it away And you know, it sounds a little bit like a ukulele. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's very similar, but the the ukulele has four strings, like I said before, and the f- the fourth one is very lower than than this one. The timple has the the tuning that the first small guitar we came from Europe to to America. So you can find there ukulele, but also cavaquinho, also cuatro in Venezuela. Um, and, so and they're all from the same family. Yeah, they are all, and they 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 are all come from the same small guitar who people use in that migration progress. You were born and raised here. When people first come here to visit you, what's the biggest surprise to them about Gran Canaria? Maybe, I think maybe the, the weather. 
<laughs> because we have uh, during all the year good weather and and that's very important because you can do different activities because of the weather so you you can find a lot of uh, concerts for example uh, and during on the whole year not only in the theater in the public public spaces the Outdoor food is very too. yeah 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 street musicians too yeah a lot of them a lot of them yeah And then the food is, is very particular because it's very, very traditional. But now, like in, in different uh, places of the world, uh, you can work with traditional food, but also open to different influence here. My thanks to Herman, to Nevis, to Thomas, and to Peter Robison. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking, or should I say, erupting travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.